The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As you might notice from the last sermon as well as this one, uh, we've been sort of skipping the scripture reading and incorporating it into the message itself. Um, And so although normally I would do a scripture reading at the beginning of the message, I'm going to do that again for this final message here in uh, the book of Ruth, okay, is that we'll not read chapter 4 together, but I'll just read it as the message goes along, okay? Uh, As we finish up our series through this book of Ruth, I want to begin by showing you a a brief video clip from a TED Talk that was done back in uh, 2014 on this topic that's called FOMO, okay? Now, um, we can advance the slide there. FOMO is one of these new words that has entered our vocabulary as a result of social media, like selfie or hashtag. It's words that we never used before until social media came along. Um, In fact, one of our summer community groups explored this issue of FOMO in the past week's study. And it basically stands for fear of missing out. It's basically this nagging feeling of disappointment and dissatisfaction with your own life as you see all the awesome things that everyone else is doing in their lives and posting on social media like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, um, it can look something like this. There you are in your motel room with your family in Wisconsin Dells, and this post pops up on your newsfeed of Joe Awesome and his awesome family in their dream vacation in Hawaii. Suddenly, your trip to the Dells doesn't look all that great to you. Or you're in your pajamas on a Friday night, getting ready to eat your bowl of instant noodles that you just made when you come across this post from Jessica Awesome. Girls' night out at Nobu, (laughs) eating a level of sushi that you can only dream about eating one day in your life, okay? Now, now the truth is, of course, none of our lives are quite as awesome as this, is it? None of us are as put together or as beautiful or whatever as it's portrayed on social media. Um, One modern-day benediction someone offered was, may your life be as awesome as you portray on social media. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great, right? Kyle Eidelman comments on that saying, Let's say you go on a vacation with your family. There are certain things you post and certain things you don't. Picture of happy family on beach, post it. Fighting in the car on the way to the beach, that one never appears on Instagram. You post, quote, date night with hubby, and with it a picture of the two of you gazing lovingly into each other's eyes. And, of course, you add a humble caption about marrying way up. Nobody posts that Monday morning picture. Two grumpy people snarling, her hair, her with hair in curlers, him with shaving cuts, and needing a little space from each other, okay? So I think he captures it well. All of us are trying to put our best foot forward. All of us are trying to portray an image of ourselves, to maintain an image that the truth is we know is, is really a lie, right? It's not really an accurate portrayal of our lives, and yet it's this feedback loop that viciously feeds into itself 
causing all of this feeling of disappointment in the people that are reading these news feeds. Let's take a look at the video, and then I'll, I'll go on, okay? FOMO is an acronym for the fear of missing out. Am I significant? That's the cause of our fear of missing out. I think uh, that TED Talk speaker really gets to the heart of the matter when it gets to this phenomenon called FOMO. Am I significant? That's the ultimate question that haunts all of us, isn't it? Um, all of our struggles for insecurity, um, our greatest fears about ourselves, lie under that singular question. Do I matter? Does my life matter? Does it count for anything? Um, and I believe that that is the theme that is addressed in this final chapter of the book of Ruth. That's why I've titled the message today, A Life That Counts. All of us want to live a life that counts. All of us long for, as was brought out in that presentation, connection and achievement, right? We, we all want that sense of purpose, sense of progress. And yet, as FOMO suggests, sometimes we can do the very things that undermine that deepest longing of our heart for significance, for a feeling like we matter. So let's jump into this final chapter of the book of Ruth. Despite the promising beginnings between Boaz and Ruth, for whatever reason, the harvest season drew to an end and nothing materialized, no romance. And if you're wondering why I'm showing a couple panda bears, listen to the podcast from last week's sermon, okay, and you'll understand, okay? And so Naomi tries to kickstart this stalled romance between Boaz and Ruth by sending Ruth at night to Boaz's threshing floor. And she basically says, look pretty, uncover his feet, and lay there next to him, and let him make the next move, and he'll tell you what to do. And as I mentioned last in the last message, this scene is charged with sexual tension and innuendo. To put it mildly, it was a risky night of possibilities where so much could have gone wrong. And yet in the end, I would argue both of them overcame that temptation and acted honorably with basically Boaz pledging himself in marriage to Ruth, um, that he will provide for her as well as even for her mother-in-law, Naomi. But even as he pledges his vow to Ruth, Boaz points out that there's a little problem, a hitch in that plan. There's a closer relative than he who has the first right to marry Ruth because he's in front of him in line if he would choose to do so. And so as the chapter comes to a close, he reassures Ruth that he is going to settle the matter before the day is done, that he's going to take care of this definitively. And so chapter 4 begins with, Ruth, with Boaz being true to his word and heading straight to the gates of the city to look for this other relative. And so the story picks up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you will not, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So in the witness of these elders and these uh, others who were there at the gate, Boaz explains the situation to this other relative, letting him know that this opportunity has arisen for him to act as a kinsman redeemer for their relative Naomi and purchase this plot of land that's been made available. This relative must have heard the news that Naomi had come back from Moab to Bethlehem because, as we saw in the previous chapter, I think it was the talk of the town when Naomi returned. And at least from as far as this relative could tell, it was a really sweet deal. Um, As I mentioned in a previous message, when a family lost their land, the nearest relative was called to act as what was known as a kinsman redeemer. And that person was expected to purchase that land back for that family that lost it. But this relative must have known that Naomi was a widow, so her husband is out of the picture. Not only that, but her sons are both dead. So they're out of the picture, and on top of that, their sons were both childless. So there aren't even any grandchildren to inherit this land. And so as he looks at it, he says, if I redeem this land, if I buy this land, I don't have to buy it for Naomi because she has no living male heirs to continue the ownership of this property. It'll come to me. I get to keep it. I get to give it to my own children. Now, you got to remember, when Joshua conquered the promised land, they divvied up that land among all the families in Israel. What that means is plots of land don't come on the market all the time, okay? It's not very frequent, and even if you do, you know that by the year of Jubilee, you got to give that land back for free. So this chance that this guy gets seems like an amazing deal. It's too good to be true. It's too good to pass up. And so not surprisingly, he jumps on it and says, this is a no-brainer. I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. And then Boaz drops the bombshell on him in verses four to five. In verses 5 to 6, it says, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. We're not sure if this relative knew about Ruth. We, we're, we're pretty much can assume he knew about Naomi. We're not sure if he knew about Ruth, or maybe he thought, even if he knew about Ruth, because she is a foreigner, a Moabitess, the rules don't apply to her. She doesn't have an inheritance among the Israelites. So we get to keep the land. But Boaz makes it clear, uh uh-uh. If you redeem this land, the widow comes with the land. you got to marry her. And you've got to provide for her a male heir so that her family can resume possession of this property, not yours. 
And with that bit of information, the attractiveness of the deal instantly vanishes for this guy. What once seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime has now become nothing but a liability with absolutely no upside to it at all. In essence, what he was thinking was, why in the world would I put up my own money to redeem this land when I have absolutely nothing to gain from it and everything to lose from this transaction? You see, all he cared about was his own personal gain from the purchase of this land. And so after working out all the angles and evaluating this transaction, he walked away from the deal because there's nothing in it for him. It's interesting According to the NIV translation, Boaz refers to this relative in verse 1 as, quote, my friend, which makes it sound like it's actually a polite term of endearment, doesn't it? But a more literal translation of that title he gives this guy would be Mr. So-and-so. It's really unusual that we're not given this guy's name in a story like this especially because he was such a close relative to the main characters in the story. By keeping him intentionally anonymous, there seems to be a clear message given to us by the author. Because of the selfish choice that this guy made, he does not deserve to be remembered in this story. Whenever the story of Ruth is told through the ages, this man's name will be forgotten. Now, before we judge this guy too harshly, let's be honest here. I think the truth is most of us would have probably acted like this, wouldn't we? Uh, Isn't that how we all tend to make decisions in our life? We work the angles too. We say, what do I gain from this? What's in it for me? And based on the answer to that question, we decide whether we're going to do it or not. And yet, here seems to be the argument here in Ruth is, if the choices that we make in life seem to center only on our own self-interest and personal gain, this anonymous relative stands as a warning that we too may write ourselves out of the story that God is unfolding in our midst. And I think that warning should be taken to heart. If pretty much the only operating value in your life is what's in it for me. It very well may be that you're writing yourself out of God's story of what he wants to do in you and around you. Compare this with Boaz's action that morning, verses 7 to 10. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Machlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Machlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family, or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. Can't you hear the excitement and energy in Boaz's voice? I picture this guy waving this guy's sandal in the air, you know, raising his voice to the elders and the other witnesses. He doesn't want her, 
So I'm marrying Ruth. Everyone hear that? I'm marrying Ruth. No do-overs, no take-backs, you know? Boaz is talking like he won the lottery or something by marrying Ruth. But the truth is this. By marrying Ruth, that was just as costly to him as it was for the other relative. The title of the land that he was redeeming with his own money would not be under his own name, but the name of Ruth's dead husband, Machlon. On top of that, he assumes not only the care of one widow, but it's a twofer. He gets two widows in the package, Naomi and Ruth. And yet here's the bizarre thing, is he sacrificed it all willingly with a generous spirit. This is the same heart with which Ruth clung to Naomi. Rather than returning back to her own family to look for a new husband, Deciding to care for her mother-in-law what it could have very well meant that Ruth would have died a childless widow in a hostile and foreign land. And as I talked about in the second message, this becomes one of the most essential hallmarks of someone who has experienced God's grace. It's the desire to share that grace with others. Who can I bless? Who can I love? Who needs to experience God's love through me? Who is in need of help around me? Let me say this. I think this topic of knowing God's will is one of these issues that modern Christians wrestle with more than just about anything else. In a lot of the counseling I do, that's our constant concern, even obsession. What does God want for my life? What am I supposed to do, door A or door B? And the way that it tends to specifically play out for us is about who do we marry? What kind of career do I pursue? Where should our family settle down? Should I change jobs? And I'm not saying that these are not important decisions. They are. But when it comes to living a life that is centered on the will of God, I'm not sure that that's actually where God puts his main focus. As I look in the story of Ruth and the witness of the rest of the Bible... Living in God's will is more fundamentally decided, not based on your career choice or where you're going to live, but whether simply you choose a life that is more like Boaz and Ruth or this anonymous relative. In other words, the real fork in the road that you're faced with is, do I operate on this fundamental principle, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this deal? Or, how does God want to use me to be a blessing to other people? That choice is going to have a far greater impact on whether you could say you're living in the will of God versus any decision you make about your career or your, voca- your, your, your company that you work with or, or what suburb you're going to settle down in or how many kids you're going to have and on and on, which is the stuff that we tend to obsess about. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 3 to 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. That's the fundamental stance of a disciple of Jesus, looking to the needs of others. Who can I help? Who can I love? 
who can I be a witness of God to? Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see, there may be special moments in our life when God directs us supernaturally to do certain things, but the picture that we see throughout the Bible is of believers who make everyday choices driven by this command to do good to others, to love them sacrificially and with generosity. It's an everyday choice that says, this is my will for you. And in living out that will, you forward the purposes of my kingdom in your life. Just like Ruth and Boaz did in their lifetime. You know, in this Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that word opportunity is literally in the Greek, the word kairos. Kairos. When the Greeks refer to time as we typically think of it, meaning sequential time, they use a different word called chronos. That's why we talk about clocks being chronographs, right? Chronos is just like the hours in a day or the days in a week. But when they use this other word for time, kairos, what it refers to is a particular moment in time ordained by God to accomplish a special purpose that he has. And so what Paul says is, recognize these kairos moments when there is a window of opportunity for you to serve someone, to love someone, to help someone, because that is a God-ordained time in which he is laying for you a path of service to somebody else that's going to advance his purposes, his kingdom. Well, you may be thinking, um, well, that's great. But how do I know when I'm presented with one of these Kairos moments? The truth is that often we won't know it. There's no indication that Boaz or Ruth ever understood that they were living in one of the greatest Kairos moments in all of history. You know, in the first message, I wasn't exaggerating when I said that the choices that these people will make in this story are among the biggest choices ever made in human history. It continues in verses 11 to 17. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In other words, Obed, the child that Boaz and Ruth had together, would go on to become none other than the grandfather of King David. 
the greatest king in the Old Testament. And not only that, but if you read Matthew 1, look at it, it says in the genealogy here, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whom mother, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And it goes on and on for about another dozen generations. And it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? In other words, Ruth and Boaz are in the genealogy of Jesus himself. In other words, God used their choices to preserve the sacred family line, this royal family line, that would one day give birth to God's own son. That's awesome when you think about that, right? That a foreigner from a people that are cursed by God became in the bloodline of the Messiah himself. Now, here's the truth is, at least before they died, Ruth and Boaz had no idea that any of this was going to happen, did they? It wasn't like Ruth said to Naomi, let me go back with you because I'm going to be the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. She didn't know that. And just like Ruth and Boaz, we don't always know when we're faced with the Kairos moment. We won't know the ultimate impact of the choices that we're going to make for God's kingdom. But this is what God invites us to, is to live in such a way that you're always looking for that opportunity to help others in that moment of need, even at great personal cost to you. Because by choosing that life, you walk into that promise of being used as his people for his glory to do things that we have no idea what the full implication is. And here's the thing is, you can hear everything that I'm saying and say, how do I do that? And I would say this, the only way that we could live a life like this is because we have first received love like this from God. I told you at the beginning that the story of Ruth is a love story. And on the human level, it's the story of sacrificial love, of a woman showing love to her mother-in-law and a man showing that same love to that woman. Now, here's the thing is, there are some people that try to dismiss all the faith aspects of the story of Ruth by reducing it to nothing more than romance. That's the power of eros, you know, erotic love is Boaz had the hots for Ruth, and he did what he could to get her as his wife. And so what? There's nothing spectacular about that story. Love happens all the time. But that's to totally misrepresent the real love story that is happening here in the book of Ruth. It wasn't romance that drove the story forward, but covenant love that Ruth and Boaz had experienced from God and were now giving to each other. Ultimately, it's the story of God's covenant love 
for us. Think about the journey that Naomi had gone through in this story at the start of the book. She had lost just about everything and believed that God was against her. She basically says, don't call me Naomi, in fact. Call me Mara because my life has been made bitter. God has turned against me. She basically felt like her life was over. What she couldn't see in the blindness of her pain was God's relentless covenant love for her, expressed through the loving and faithful service provided by these two people in her life, Ruth and Boaz. By the end of the story, what a turnaround. We find this old lady holding a grandson that she thought she would never hold in her life with her friends surrounding her in celebration, saying, not Ruth has a son, but Naomi has a son. It's interesting, right? They say, Naomi has a son, meaning that is the real miracle. It's that story of Naomi. Ruth could have gone and married someone else and had other kids, but if anyone's life seemed over and hopeless, it was Naomi's. And yet, as a declaration of that praise to God, they say, Naomi has a son. I also want you to think about this story from this perspective. Look at this ragtag group of broken people that God assembled together, right? This foreigner widow with no children. This Jewish widow whose husband had died and her two sons had died without leaving any grandchildren. And this guy that in truth was probably over the hill and had never gotten married, and for whatever reason, it seemed like love had passed him by. And he takes these broken people, and he brings them together in this beautiful community of grace that they show to each other. He shows them grace, and then they show grace to one another, and they create this family out of that, this amazing family. And I believe that that is a perfect description of the church. The custom of the kinsman redeemer was given by God to prepare the Israelites, in other words, for the one true redeemer who would come and make the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Because of our sins, we had lost our inheritance from God. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus redeemed it back for us as our kinsman redeemer by dying on the cross, so that once again we can be heirs to the promise of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on on the cross. That's the message of the gospel, is that Christ paid the ultimate cost to gain back what we had lost because of our sin. And in redeeming us, what he does is he assembles us, a group of broken people, into a family of grace. And so that's why he gives this command. Whenever I give you opportunity, show the same love that you have experienced from me to the family 
that I have given you. You know, just because the Bible says God loves us doesn't mean that we're going to be somehow immune to any pain or any difficulty in our life. Naomi was given a new family. But I suspect that until the very day she died, she never forgot about Elimelech, her husband, or Kilion and Machlon, her two sons who died before her, or even her daughter-in-law, Orpah, that she lost. I don't think that pain ever really goes away. And yet, in the midst of that pain, God showed her that there is always hope for tomorrow. His love promises us, I will be with you. I will help you. And that was something that Naomi simply couldn't believe, couldn't simply see at the start of her journey. But in the journey that God took took her on, showed her the incredible faithfulness of God. His love poured out on her. And that, I believe, is the message you and I are invited to wrestle with as we close this story of Ruth. Will you believe in that love of God for you and live the kind of life of grace demonstrated by Ruth and Boaz? Because as the Bible says over and over again, if you really believe in that love and know that love, then you have to embody that love toward other people. And it's so easy to choose the path of that anonymous relative. I don't see what's in it for me. I don't want any part in that. Or you can say, God is doing something bigger than my loss, than my pain. He's doing something bigger than the sacrifices that he's asking me to make. And if I can be used by him as a blessing to somebody else in this moment of need, I surrender myself to his will, not mine. Let's pray. As we finish up this book of Ruth, just want to invite you to do a little reflection on your life, if you would. And I want you to think about what the story represents. Um, at the most important level, it represents the story of God's kind and loving covenant commitment to his people. And like I said, it doesn't mean that you're going to always be freed of any pain or suffering. But it means that tomorrow always holds hope for a better day. That's his commitment to us. Um, I think all of us want to live a life that counts. All of us want to feel like our life mattered. It's interesting, this last week I've been scanning all these old photos and slides that I have, dating all the way back to my high school days, going into college and earlier married life. And I, it just caused me to reflect on all these different things that have gone on in my life, all these opportunities that God opened. And yet, um, the truth, honest truth was, my life feels a little bit disjointed, scattered, you know? It's just, there have been these seasons in my life where I thought, this is it. This is it for me. Like, this is what God's going to do. And then, very unexpectedly, I got pulled away from that whole world. Thought for sure that I'd live out a full career as a missionary in Africa, and suddenly that got stripped away from me. Now I find myself back in Chicago pastoring a church and kind of look and say, you know, 
Where's the progress in any of that? Where's the purpose? And, and I, I was like looking at these pictures of these people that I was interacting with. And I was like, I don't even know what any of that was about, you know? I, I was trying to do what I thought God wanted me to do, and yet I don't understand the purposes. And as I look at the arc of my whole life, I, I don't know if I could put it all together in this cohesive storyline. I don't. I feel like I've just been tossed around all over the place at some level, just planting seeds. And yet the truth is, most of those seeds, I feel like I never got to stick around long enough to see the fruit. And I think that really describes well this life of faith, you know, this, this FOMO that we talked about at the beginning is this desperate clawing to feel like my life matters. And there's this false connecting of social media in which we're maintaining images of ourselves and desperately trying to feel like we've accomplished something. And there's the honest connecting and the real accomplishment that only can come by living for God's kingdom. I don't know where the journey of your life is going to take you, what paths of brokenness it's going to lead to, frankly, and pain that you're going to be asked to endure. I make you no guarantees as your pastor that to follow Jesus means an easy life, a charmed life, an easy road. But what I can reassure you of this, what you crave for most in your life, that my life matters, that I am known, I am loved, that I found true connection can only happen when we surrender ourselves to God. That's the only way you could lie on your deathbed one day and say it was worth it all, was to live for God and surrender self to Him. So as we have a time of response and prayer, I just want to invite you to reflect on your own heart. Where do you find your sense of meaning and purpose and significance? My prayer is that where you would find it is in the only one that can provide it for you, in God Himself. We just offer a prayer of faith like that to him, and then the worship team will lead us in some songs of response.